Right, so here we are. Um, for the this is uh, Kino Kingdom eleven now, Rupert. This is, the is 11, it really? Yeah, eleven times we've met up virtually, and we've yeah. got new headphones today as well, and new yeah. microphones. So hopefully, which should be works nothing. seamlessly, not a oh, single hiccup. Plug and play. It plug definitely play. was not. It wasn't like trying to get the Sound Blaster IRQ set up. Let me tell you about that. So, yeah, uh, yeah I've, I've got um. Well, the two films we've seen together on the Action Men Night were Night Hunter and Trained to Kill, obviously. And the ones I've got to go through this week are uh, Venom, Inception, W Delta Z, The Hollow Point, Searching, Man on a Ledge, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, and a film called Remains. Blimey. All classics. Yeah. Have you got any... uh, have you got goodies? I've got I've got a few goodies here. So I have. We've always got Night Hunter and Train to Kill, as yeah. we discussed. Uh, I've got all of the um, Daniel Craig Bond films. Uh, I have Navy Seals, Heavy Metal, Awakenings, Rambo two thousand and eight, Robocop three, Blind Fury, and oh, nice. Trilogy of Terror. And no escape. Escape. Um, no escape. Oh, I'm thinking of no way out. Trilogy of Terror. Is that a horror anthology? Please. It is. Thank you. And uh, yeah, and Blind Fury is one I was hovering. O- I was hovering over the other day, and I, I didn't. Mm. I didn't go for it. I didn't pull the trigger. I didn't pull the Roger Lloyd pack. Um, before I know we're going to kick off with the two that, that we we watched together, but I know we're a small podcast. But Rupert, um, we have had some sponsorship. Um, I've been putting the feelers oh, about, and uh, Jeffrey Coombs actually got in touch with me, um, which was interesting. And he said, "Oh, I'd be interested in sponsoring the show." And I said, "Well, that's amazing. You know, any exposure is good for us." Um, and he said, I'll, uh, "Can I have your address? I'm going to sort of send you." And I thought, "This weird. You need my address." But um, he was going to send me like um, it was like an audio advert to play to sort of show some sponsorship. But yeah, sure. he sent it over in a like um, it was like on a on a zip disk. So mm. I obviously haven't got a zip drive, but he's given me like a sheet of paper to read out. So I'm not going to do his voice. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm not really one for jingles and advertising. So I hope this is OK. So this is the sponsorship for this episode from Jeffrey Coons. Mm. OK. don't know if you can hear that in the background. I thought okay. I'd put a bit of advert music on. I can. Okay. It's a, it's a saucy, quite saucy jazz music. Okay. So, uh, yeah, this week we're sponsored by Jeffrey Coombs comes roving over in a pullover and comb over just to say give over near Dover. Hi, hi, I'm Jeffrey Coombs. You probably know me from my movies. Honky Tonk Freeway, Whose Life Is It Anyway, Frightmare, The Skin of Our Teeth, The Man With Two Brains, Reanimator, from Beyond, Cyclones, Cellar Dweller, Dead Man Walking, The Phantom Empire, Pulse Pounders, Bride of Reanimator, The Pit and the Pendulum, Robot Jocks, The Giver, Death Falls, Trances 2, Dr. Mordred, Fortress, Necronomicon, Love in a 45, The Lurking Fear, Castle Freak, Felony, Cyberstalker, a.k.a. The Digital Prophet, Dillinger and Capone, The Frighteners, Norma Jean and Marilyn, Time Tracers, Snide and Prejudice, 
I still know what you did last summer. Caught up. Spoiler. House on Haunted Hill. Poseidon's Fury Escape from the Lost City. Faust Love of the Damned. The Attic Expeditions. Contagion. Fear.com. Beyond Reanimator. Hammerhead Shark Frenzy. All Souls de Dialectos Mortos. Edmund. Satanic. Voodoo Moon. Abominable. Blackwater Valley Exorcism. Return to House on Haunted Hill. The Wizard of Gore. Brutal. The Attack Men. Stuck. Parasomnia. The Donich Horror. Dark House. Elfman. Would You Rather. Night of the Living Dead 3D. Reanimation. Motivational Growth. Favor. Or My Others. Well, from September to December, I'll be staying in Dover, visiting family. And for a low, low price to be decided upon during booking, I'll travel to your house in a pullover while sporting a comb over and shout give over through your letterbox. This is available only in Dover and the surrounding villages, which, for clarity, are Alcum, Ailsham, Barfrestone, Barnsall, <laughs> Betshanger, Buckland, Capel Fern, Chillenden, Church Whitfield, Drellingore, East Langdon, Elvington, Ewilminis, Farthinglow, Finglesham, Greater Mongham, Little Mongham, Kingsdown, Knowlton, Langdon, Lydon, Nonnington, Northbourne, Pynham, Plucks Gutter, <laughs> Shatterling, Shepherdswell, Sheldon, Snowdown, St. Margaret's at Cliff, Staple, Stourmouth, Sutton, Swingate, Temple Ewell, Tilmanston, Waldershire, West Langdon, West Studdle, Woodensborough, and Wootton. For more information, please visit www.jeffreycombscomesroamingover and comb over just to say give over near Dover.com. <laughs> so it's nice to have some sponsorship. I mean, like I said, we're a small podcast, so yeah. Um, it's a oh, shame it's... I didn't have the original audio file ready. Yeah, it's a bit really, isn't it? Because it was a nice little concise message that he had, really. And he just went through a quick rundown of a couple of his biggest movies, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I like the sort of, I mean, the, the clarity. You know, when you, especially in America, when you see these these adverts and they can't, you know, especially when they're advertising pharmaceuticals and they have to list all of the side effects really quickly. I like mm. the fact that he got that American sort of clarity on. We, are, if you are interested in having him come over to perform that action in in Dover, he lists the town, so there's no. Oh, you know, am I valid because I live in Bristol? No, no. No. He went through them. That was yeah. really nice. That was, that was a nice touch, wasn't it? Thank yeah, you, Jeffrey. So, thank you, Jeffrey Coombs. And yeah, if you're interested, yeah. go to the website. Um, so yeah, Rupert, do you want to kick off with the, the films that we uh, we watched together? Not really, because they're awful. But we will. <laughs> okay. Night Hunter, starring yes. Don the Dragon Wilson. <laughs> we Our search for a good Don the Dragon Wilson film continues. <laughs> yeah, this, this one's was from, not a good Yeah, this is from 1996, and Don is a vampire hunter. He's basically hunting down the last vampires on Earth, uh, which include the king vampire, or king of the vampires, whatever. He, <laughs> he, as in Don, has no idea how many vampires actually exist, but he has to eliminate this cell because they killed his parents. Um, well, I'm just going to go straight into one of the major problems with this which is shaky cam yeah. and this is not 
what you're thinking, like Bourne style, shaking a handheld camera. They have done it in post-production where they've taken the camera work during the fight scene specifically and given it this ridiculous tremor, which is yeah. really fast paced. And it actually gave us headaches. You had to, well, you had to look away from the screen. Away, right? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, where we watch the, the, the movies, I'm, I'm sitting like, I'd say three or four feet from my monitor. So I, and I'm in a dark room and it was just making my eyes feel like they were vibrating. So I had to just shut my eyes on most of the fight scenes. Yeah. It's <laughs> so, amazing. I've this... never, we've never come across a film that has sort of so fundamentally been almost medically unwatchable. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. Nothing makes sense in the film. I mean, it's not even a good film anyway. So, um, no. like he, at one point he fights a vampire, right? Who, one thing you pointed out was that he'll, he'll like be stalked by a vampire and the vampire will like jump around the place really quickly and like really bamboozle him. But then when they actually come down to fighting, the vampire doesn't use any of those skills. He just like has a rubbish fight with him like, head on. <laughs> um, but yeah, at one point he fights this vampire and uh, defeats him. So thing. And then as he's walking away, Don just happens to find like a key that fell out of the vampire's pocket on the floor. And it, for some reason he picks up this key, assuming it's from the vampire and instantly knows what key the build, uh, what building the key is for. It and literally it cuts to... to him at a building opening yeah. a door, and it's just and like it's a vampire's HQ, like a... of course. <laughs> it's astonishing. A lot of and yeah, to break it down a bit further as well, all of the all of his kind of knowledge of the vampires is just com- like he's got this. It starts off with him having a book um, that his father sort of given him. Uh, to say, you know, this is the information you need. And it, and it, you see him leafing through this book at various points in the film. And it's just like a load of drawings of castles and forests. It's like nothing yeah. useful. And he, when the, he meets the sort of woman who acts as his sidekick, he, she's asking him information and he's just, he's just saying, oh yeah, you, yeah, it's all this stuff about like garlic and, and steaks. It's nonsense. You need to break their backs. And yet throughout the film, he consistently snaps their necks, not their backs. Except so, in one, one scenario where he just shoots him. And it yep. seems to kill him. Don't know whether it maybe it shot through him and broke his back. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's he, also he, got. Yeah, I, was, yeah, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say <laughs> that he's constantly wielding a completely useless, outdated double barrel shotgun, Brit. Yeah, and he, which he actively knows doesn't hurt them. And yeah. yet, like when he loses it, he's like, oh shit, I've lost my shotgun now. But no. he shoots them point blank in the chest with both barrels and they, they care not. <laughs> so it's, it's like a useless. It's like he's. And they constantly, constantly get the jump on him as well. There's not a moment in that every, film. Where yeah, he's, like he's a vampire hunter who gets uh, snuck up on every single time, every encounter. He, <laughs> they get the jump on him. Yeah, it's his hair is astonishing as well. Uh, his clothes actually like got on our friend Chris's nose because he's. It's like I don't know what if they thought it was cool, but he's got this kind of shoulder length kind of wavy hair. And then like a like a sort of see through black string vest with like a waistcoat over the top, and then like a like a jet black kind of Columbo like double breasted rain jacket, yeah. uh, and one glove. And you think, what what are you wearing? What is this supposed Why to represent? And then, yeah. well, it's over twenty years old, so we can spoil the ending, where yes. where he's sort of attacked. He's gone after the final vampire. Well, first he has um, a fight with the vampire. The main vampire is like henchman. Who, basically, um, 
the it, the fight scene is like a martial arts fight scene, but it keeps it's edited in such a weird way that what will happen is that one person will be getting like the upper hand, and then it will cut away, cut back, and then suddenly they're they haven't got the upper hand anymore, and it's completely completely flipped. There's no continuity to the actual fight scene. It's like he's winning, and then suddenly it'll cut, and he's not winning anymore. It's like there's no flow to it at all. Anyway, so then he finished that, and then he goes to get the final vampire. The final vampire, the main vampire, decides to go outside during the day um, onto the roof. There's a roof again. And yep. <laughs> always a roof in these movies. And um, and all he does, he has a fight with him, gets, gets the shit kicked out of him, really, doesn't he? Mm. And, um, and then one last-ditch effort, he removes the main vampire's sunglasses, and that's the thing that that defeats him uh, the, obviously punching the vampire repeatedly in the face has not dislodged his sunglasses but he then he punches uh, him in the face and he he rips up a pipe off the floor and smashes him across the face about eight or nine times but then he and then when he kind of realizes that's not working he literally just leans over and really gingerly just removes his sunglasses and that's it that's the end of the fight yeah why it's... did the main vampire go out on the roof in the daytime anyway to, to put himself at a disadvantage yeah. and one final thing just on the plot i know that it's a very thin plot but he's got this book that he relies on that we know is worthless and full of basically just misinformation yeah. but when he's he's got this book and he's got like a list of the vampires he's killed that he's crossed out and it, it it's obviously not an up-to-date list because the book is old and yellowed and frayed anyway and he's had it for 30 years because we see him sort of grow up so and yet he's convinced that like when those vampires are dead that that's it like he, he just yes. he just seems to think that when he's crossed off those eight names that's it he's killed all the vampires in the world when obviously <laughs> they would have bred in the intervening quarter of a century it's bizarre it is absolutely yeah it just doesn't make any sense none of that yeah. makes sense um, uh, and I, I would also stand by the fact that just to end that it's one of the worst films I've ever seen because the camera shake has to be seen to be believed. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. Um, yeah. So um, we also watched a film called Train to Kill, which, wow, that was impressive. <laughs> the, the the biggest name in the movie is Robert Zar. Zar. Oh, the... <laughs> and then there's oh we worked out there's also henry silver we vaguely recognized from somewhere but we're not sure where um so <laughs> just rent a bad guy really and um yeah. it's a staggeringly inept cheapo action movie um yeah where we worked out that actually most of the film doesn't need to happen at all because basically it's about it's got this weird like like underlying plot about this guy who um this ex-soldier who when he was in vietnam he um had a child with this woman um and he basically at the start of the film they're bringing him back when he's grown up sort of thing 20 years later or whatever and yeah. um so they bring him back to the u.s so he meets his brother um now the father then is murdered by these these guys and the reason he's murdered is because they want to get their hands on this diamond special diamond um and they succeed 
in getting within the ten minutes. Within yeah. About, yeah, 10, 15 minutes. They, they kill the, the diamond. diamond. They they kill the Jack Palance lookalike, the father, yes. who kind of they, they they blame for being thrown in the brig for a couple of years. So they literally succeed at their plot in the first ten minutes. Yeah. Not only do they get the diamond, they do the sale. So they've got their five million dollars or whatever split between what five of them. So yeah. they've got at least a million million dollars each. So then they can skip town if they want to. But no, they don't skip town. They hang around the town, taunting these two bereft brothers um, until finally they're defeated. And it's like, well, and they even go to the. It's there's one bit where the one of them, one of the the this crew of uh, ne'er do wells, they um, they basically entice the brothers um, into this underground car park using some like item um that they know what it means but they entice them there in order to shoot them fails to shoot them for some reason and then he goes back to his boss and says oh, i think they're on to us it's yeah, like well no because on because you invited them there you might as well have just sent them a card in the post and the way the way they get invited there is they're at their father's funeral and a child mm. runs up to them and gives them a bit of paper that basically <laughs> says, go to the car park. It's so <laughs> weird. They've just had one conversation with the police chief who's really needlessly unpleasant. And then as they're just standing there, this kid just walks up to them and it comes into the frame holding a bit of paper and says, oh, you've got to go to this underground car park. Anyway, okay. yeah, so even at that point okay so that guy did something stupid at that point they're alerted to the fact that these brothers want blood so it's like they don't skip town then or anything like that they just decide to keep hanging around keep taunting them keep killing their friends and stuff rather and just constantly making the problem worse getting enticing them further and further um <laughs> until ultimately there's that weird bit at the end where they kidnap a, one of the this girlfriend and yeah. string her up like, I don't know, some like uh, a kind of uh, Mad Maxian. Yeah, like or something like yeah. King Kong or something like that, you know, just waiting for the sacrifice to be taken. And so that was odd. Um, but, you know, even even if the plot doesn't make sense, it wouldn't matter anyway, because the action scenes are so incompetent and the performances yeah. are awful and the script is terrible and the boom mic is visible on several occasions. Several. Oh, oh, on one one scene towards the start when they're, they're killing the Jack Palance lookalike, we counted six times the boom mic dropped into shot, and that's in one scene. And it's oddly, a lot of it is oddly filmed in like a single caravan, and they just keep moving the furniture around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is staggering. Uh, yeah. And, th- and, and also, yeah, speaking of like the lo- locales, um, the sort of drunk. Um, like old war buddy of the of the father yeah. who kind of takes him under his wing. He's constantly talking about how broke he is now. He's like a raging alcoholic. He lives in this palatial villa in the centre of a city. Yeah. And well, that's not even his main house. That's like a sort of spare he's got. <laughs> it's so bizarre. It's so yeah. bizarre. It's it's it's, it's kind of worth a watch because it's 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 surprisingly inept. And there's a sequence where um some like Robert Starr gets his come up and uh, they throw a grenade into the car he's in, and it, it doesn't go off. I'd say a good forty five seconds, and he's just instead of just jumping out of the car, coming to a halt, he just like drives around. Yeah, <laughs> drives around, crashes his car, and then it blows up. So you know he could have done an awful lot in that time. Um, <laughs> yeah. It is bizarre. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's basically the best film on Amazon Prime, so watch it now. Yeah, get it on you. Train to kill. Um, shall, shall I kick off? Fire away. 
uh, fire. So I'll kick off with um, uh, we, I'll just kick off with Inception because we kind of mostly covered oh, yeah. it just as a quick one. I I got to say you covered this in the last podcast and you made me want to watch it and I really enjoyed it. Um, I totally agree with what you you sort of said and that it's a puzzle that's presented to you and at the end of it it's quite clear cut what like how it, how it's kind of resolved and yes. if it's real or not. And then I kind of did a tiny bit of research and saw that like not only is Michael Caine and Christopher Nolan and but people have pointed out this there's so many there's about four or five ways in this in which the ending is very definitive. And so I was surprised when we had a chat earlier in the week and you were saying that people still still say oh, no 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 it's uh, it's open to interpretation. You think no, no. it's it's not, it's not it's I don't I think it's almost like like fan fanboys of things like yearning for more yearning mm. for like more mystery it, I, like as if, it, yeah, as if it, it's, it's ambiguous then it makes it means it's better it doesn't need any of that it doesn't need to be ambiguous or there doesn't need to be a mystery it, if if it is a a puzzle film something to be worked out then it's okay for it to come to a definite conclusion you know it doesn't yeah. it it wouldn't particularly benefit from it being an ambiguous Open ending ended. no um and also if it was an ambiguous ending it would just it would be considering it's such a, a like a sort of um a film that presents itself as quite cerebral if you did look into it it would just completely collapse under its own plot logic that way yes so it has to be an ambiguous and also i i whilst i really enjoyed it um i did think that it kind of uh the the deeper into the dreams they went the the more kind of you were right in the way that it, the way it presents sort of dream dreams and dream logic as pretty clinical. Um, yeah. Like there's nothing kind of dreamlike about them. And the the deeper they went at the dreams and when they ended up in the kind of snowy sort of area, uh, the, mm. my interest kind of waned a little bit and it's almost like they threw in a lot of action and I, and it relied so much on split second timing and ridiculous setups like Joseph Gordon Levitt, instead of just upending a bed, whenever and fell off it, putting himself in a lift that explodes and stuff. And the whole point at the start of the film that he doesn't he Leonardo DiCaprio's entire kind of motivation is to be able to like spend time with his kids. And he could literally have just said, all right, then, kids, come with your grandparents because he's still on good terms with Michael Caine. We're going to live in France now. They're too young to be. It's not like he's ripping them out of school or from their lives. Yeah, they're like toddlers. Mm. That film didn't really need to happen anyway. (laughs) So basically, it's a bit like trying to kill in that respect. Yes, yes. Although if Christopher Nolan released a film and it was 15 minutes long and it was just Leonardo DiCaprio on the phone just just arranging a visa for his children, it probably wouldn't have been as well. <laughs> no, yeah. So it's uh, so you enjoyed it. It's good. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm kind of picking apart it, but yeah, I did. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, right. Well, I I watched all of the uh, Daniel Craig Bond movies. So I, so well, me and my wife did because she fancied, uh, well, Daniel Craig, but she fancied do, like something a bit like Mission Impossible. I did warn her, you know, that it is a bit like Mission Impossible, but not as good. But <laughs> and that's exactly how, what we got in the end. So obviously, this is four movies: is Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, uh, Skyfall, and Spectre. Now. I won't go into detail about each one because it'll take forever. But basically, Casino Royale is the one with the uh, card game and the baddie played by Mads Mikkelsen who weeps blood. And <laughs> I, I think this is 
my favorite of them now looking at them in totality uh i like the way that they can in this film they the game of poker is something i don't understand the rules to but they manage to keep it interesting without ever explaining the rules which is quite clever it's done with performance and editing i like how bond is inexperienced and he's a bit of a dick um and he gets taken down a peg or two because of his cockiness it's got some weird pacing in it there's a lot of quite slow burn scenes but then you'll have certain events and certain characters that kind of resolve very quickly it's a little bit disjointed there's almost like a mini movie at the start before any of the the poker game stuff where it's a load of action scenes just like strung together which is kind of cool it does grab the attention certainly um i think crucially there's real chemistry between eva green and daniel craig uh like the scene where they meet on the train is very hitchcockian you know a lot of kind of courting flirtation is very well done i'd say it's it's um it's the most enjoyable of the craig movies i would say because it has some of the kind of mad energy and ridiculous action sequences that you might see in mission impossible um it's i think um i think the later films i can't remember i think it's specter which obviously you'll get to when um it's more obsessed with like age and i think that i think a lot of the bond films like when you've got the skyfall it's about family and then specter is is about sort of getting older effectively casino Royale is just more about fun it, it's the only one i really go yes. back to because it's not trying to make a point i really really like skyfall but yeah. it's a bit more ponderous whereas casino Royale is just more all and out fun yeah i i think i agree with that that um it is just more about fun and it it's kind of a problem overall that the Bond series has really is how do you make it kind of relevant and up to date when all of its tropes are, are quite old fashioned. They're so locked know? in the past. Yeah. yeah. And I think that Skyfall attempts to kind of um, at least acknowledge that, that kind of thing because, oh, well, I'll, I'll talk about quantum solace a little bit because this, this one is like where it, it they really tried to modernize it in the most awkward way possible, because this is the one about the eco terrorist guy um, trying to create artificial drought so we control the water supply. And it's significantly shorter than Casino Royale, but it feels longer. If anything, this is where like bond is really grief stricken. So he has no fun at all. And <laughs> to be honest, everyone has Olga Korolenko has a face like a slap dust as well. And they, um, in, does she put in a better performance than in the courier though she does yeah to be fair okay um it, the problem is is that the way it's edited because this is well it was just like 2008 so they probably should have known better but the it really is taking a lot from the Bourne series the the action scenes are horribly edited in quantum of solace they're absolutely unintelligible and you know it's just it's so quick cutting and but not only that quick cutting is one thing but they just in the editor just inserts r- weird shots into the action sequences. Like it will be like someone's face in a crowd or something with like a shocked expression. It's like so weird. And it's, I don't know, it's almost dreamlike and it's like lack of intelligibility. It's, it's almost surreal. So yeah, um, it, it's not the best. It, I mean, the script is okay, but the plot is pretty mundane itself there are no there are no memorable set pieces i can't think of anything from quantum where it's like oh yeah this is a really cool scene well i i said to you the other day that like i watched quantum solace whereas i've seen casino real i'd say four times or so and and to be honest i could happily watch it again tonight um quantum solace 
I've seen twice. And the first time I watched it, I remember really just not liking it. The second time, it struck me as almost like, um, like I described as like a video game DLC. Like it, it's almost like it's sort of the um, like the Numon, Denumon of Casino Royale without being like a fully fledged film in its own right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty drab, really, and it is distinctly skippable. I'd say. Who um, directed that one? Sorry, Mark Forster. Um, who's more of a kind of, um, it's, he's like more of a middling, uh, he's not an art house director, but he made stuff like Finding Neverland and Monster's Ball, um, I want Kite to Runner. With... Oh, okay. Um, he did World War Z as well. Um, but yeah. It's, it's not terribly good. Anyway, Skyfall, this is when Sam Mendes stepped up. And I used to really love Skyfall. I loved it when it came out. And so this is a one where Bond is accidentally shot at the start. Um, and But when Britain is attacked by terrorists, he returns. And he basically just he goes to hunt down this guy, um, this ex-agent, it turns out, um, played by Javier Bardem. And... Javier Bardem is, he really wants to kill the old woman, the old woman being M, but also, in a sense, the old woman is Britain itself, sort of thing. So that's where you get this kind of like, um, this push and pull between the old and the new. And it's kind of reflected in the in the plot, which sees MI5, or is it MI6? Well, whatever. It sees M- that. MFI, I think it is. <laughs> And it's like it's seen as being quite old fashioned um, and, you know, it's got to keep up with the times. But anyway, so. Um, yeah, so I think part of part of why I enjoyed this one so much when it came out is because it, it was released in 2012 and it was it was the one time in my life. I think I felt vaguely proud to be British because if you remember those at the Olympics and the government wasn't totally horrendous at the time and maybe we were recovering from the crash and then and brexit and trump hadn't happened yet so it was actually okay to be british for a little while just that little window <laughs> so, and this was a film about britain and um it had a it provided a kind of safe sense of patriotism without jingoism so but looking back its flaws do stand out somewhat it like its constant callbacks to earlier bond of really quite tedious i've got to say and the compulsion to reintroduce classic characters like money penny and q and bring in the old cars on location uh and it's the kind of stuff that casino royale had, had kind of avoided brought it up to date much better i think um and also it doesn't really make sense because right so you've got casino royale where bond is a new agent basically he's a new 007 he's a new double mm. agent yeah. Casino Royale follows directly from that film. Like it's literally an hour later. So oh, you mean Quantum of Solace, sorry. Quantum of Solace, yeah. Quantum of Solace um, follows Casino Royale literally an hour later. So they're, they're both pretty much his first few days, basically. <laughs> and um, But now suddenly in Skyfall, suddenly Bond is too old. This is the something, an allegation that's put to him. And it's like, what? Where did that come from? Um, and the Javier Bardem's plan doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, it's planned years ahead, years ahead to the nearest second. So and yet he fails to shoot M when he gets the opportunity because 
someone just jumps in the way. It's like, did you not think that might happen? Do you not think that someone might actually try and protect her? Try to stop that from happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, the narrative does resemble the Dark Knight quite closely. This crazy man who has, who is the kind of dark side of Bond, um, kills an innocent woman in order to get himself caught so he can carry out his plan. It's definite overtones of that. So I can understand that. Yeah, it's more. It feels more like a collection of really, really cool scenes, um, but strung together quite loosely. Uh, yeah, so I'm not sure the plot really makes that much sense. But there are some really good scenes, there, and I love the finale in the house in Scotland, the kind of Home Alone finale. So that was really cool. Doesn't Albert Finney rock up or something as well? Yeah, of course he does, oh, with a vague Scottish accent. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah it works quite well at the ending I like the way it's sort of back to basics and it's got real kind of emotional resonance at the end which brings me to Spectre finally um, we can f- finally get off this topic Spectre <laughs> is was also by Sam Mendes and that was directed like three years later I think 2015 this was and again Bond has gone rogue meanwhile MI6 is being dismantled in favour of mass surveillance Bond is hunting down Blofeld, as he turns out to be, the mastermind behind the operation. And this is really the worst of the Craig movies for me. It's really, really long and slow. And it, yeah, there aren't really many memorable set pieces. There's a really cool unbroken shot at the start. And I like the fight with Dave Bautista on the train. But in all fairness, he always he always kind of delivers Dave. Oh yeah, and yeah. Always, and I like the way he's got one line, one spoken line. It's just the word shit. That's quite funny. But um, apparently, this is one of the most expensive films ever made. But I'm not seeing it. I don't get that. There's a terribly, terribly superimposed helicopter fight at the start. It looks awful. Um, but I, you know, you can overlooking that. There's there's this massive build up right to meeting Blofeld. This ultimate. Um, this ultimate bad guy. By the way, it retcons massively the previous films, previous Craig films. Basically, says that all of all of what was happening in the previous Craig films was part of um, Blofeld's master plan to get this massive yes, place. Yeah, like, so mm, I but I just watched all them, and <laughs> there was really nothing to do with it. Like Javier Bardem in Skyfall, it was a very personal thing that he was doing. It was specifically personal. And now you're saying that it was all part of Blofeld's master plan, whatever. Anyway, so they have this massive build-up to meeting Christoph Waltz. And it's it's well over an hour into the film. And you're still building up, building up. And then you meet him, Christoph Waltz, and he's just a slightly fey kind of camp quipping villain. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's quite physically small, but... On top of that, he hasn't really got any gravitas at all. It's weird. <laughs> I remember as well, I said to you that um, what I found about that, because Christopher Waltz is, can be such a commanding presence. And in and in this exactly. film, when Glorious he's kind glasses. of yeah. when he's kind of drenched and ensconced in shadow and Bond's like, you know, who is this guy? What uh, you know, this this power he's wielding, and he's all enigmatic and speaks in like gestures and nods and everyone just completely moves to his every command. And then when you meet him, he's like, Hey, how you doing, Danny? And you're like, What? <laughs> It's, and it's like he's a totally different character when he's out in the sunshine and not like half covered in shadow in a chair. It's yeah. bizarre. And when you compare that to like the, when he first meets Javier Bardem in Skyfall, which is actually quite terrifying, um, then it's just, just no comparison. It, again, this doesn't really make sense. A lot of this, like Bond, is stumbling around like some naive rookie. Like he 
he walks straight into Blofeld's heavily guarded lair um, and instantly gets captured and tortured. And it's like, what do you think would happen if you're doing that? Like, it's, you know this is about, you suspect him to be a very, very bad man who has all this control, all this power, and you just walk straight in. And this and, reminds me of um, the, the the scene in the Wolverine where uh, the Jack Hugh Jackman just just walks into this like Japanese town and then mm-hmm. and they, they just he just walks straight down the street and they just fire dozens of poisoned arrows <laughs> into him and he just drops he doesn't even get to walk down the street you think what a crap plan bear yes. in mind that your specific abilities are like sort of stealth and like feral kind of it was yeah. so yeah it just it doesn't yeah. make sense in the in terms of the film. The last 30 minutes of Spectre are just bafflingly awful as well. It's just an awful... I uh, cannot remember it. Running around in the dark in the MI6, MI5 building. I've really got to find out whether it's MI5 or MI6. Anyway, I'm pretty so sure it's MI6. Yeah. So he's running around in the just dark building and it's just dull. And then it's about to get blown up. He's got 30 seconds to get out with the girl. And he says, trust me to her, grabs her. And he leaps down like this basically just a massive hole in the floor falls about 10 floors and there just happens to be this big cargo net below it which they land on quite safely and walk out Mm. what and then gets into a a boat don't know where that came from after the massive explosion so gets into a boat and he is driving along on the boat and the big finale is him shooting down blofeld's helicopter with a handgun yes i remember that and that's it that's it's awful uh, the, the thing is, after watching so recently, watching the last two or three Mission Impossible films, exactly the difference in quality is is a real issue. It is, and in the thing is about uh, Spectre as well is they do create a kind of Mission Impossible style team. Uh, you know, you got Q, Money Penny, M, and they're they're running around at home, but they don't actually do anything except argue with Andrew Scott, who, by the way, is even less scary than Christoph Waltz in this film. And mm. they don't not really doing anything. And at the end, they're kind of together as a team, but they haven't actually functionally done much to assist Bond throughout this whole endeavour. And it, yeah, it just reminded me of how cool Mission Impossible is, the way that the team comes together and they all have their own roles. You know, they all work together almost like a, like in a symphonic way. Um, and there's none of that in this. It's... I'm just not, it's like Bond declines while Mission Impossible kind of ascends, if you like. I'm not sure where uh, they can go with the next one, to be honest, because the franchise is loaded with so much baggage. Um, Andrew Scott, as well, is also the name of the character that Dolph Lundgren plays in Universal Soldier. Really? Yeah. It always, uh, always amuses me, that. That's quite a, a sort of ordinary, it's like a geography teacher's name, isn't it? Yeah, Andrew Scott as well, the actor who played, obviously played Moriarty in the Sherlock Holmes, he looks too much like Declan Donnelly to be a real sort of threatening Bond villain, in, to my eyes. So Yeah, I'm not convinced by him at all. Yeah, so <laughs> so basically, yeah, it's um, it's a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to Bond. So your, I, your, your, your Daniel Craig Bond films would go, number one, Casino Royale, yes. number two, Skyfall, three, yes. Quantum of Solace, and then four, Spectre. Spectre. If Spectre had been 40 minutes shorter, maybe <sighs> maybe I would have given it a bit more of a break, but it is long, really long as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there I'm you go. sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, well, kind of moving on, because obviously with the, I'll move on to my next film, um, Venom. Uh, which I've been on a bit of a Tom Hardy a thorn really because he's in he's in two of the films I'm going to talk about today but um 
I've got like a real history with Venom because uh, like when I was a kid, he was what my favorite Marvel character. And I don't, I'm not a fan of the Marvel films because like I said, if anything bigger than a shed blows up, I'm not usually interested. Or mm. like these three hour long films where this like this epic in scope and they just introduce as many characters as possible and all team up. Not my bag. I watched Venom last, I think it was on Monday and for my money it's the best marvel film i've ever seen because <laughs> i absolutely because i paid for it on on prime it was like six quid for the 4k version and i sat there and i didn't really have high expectations but i thought i'm i'm really in i'm really in a tom hardy mood and i like venom i think he's a cool character so hopefully right. they'll mesh and i'll have some fun and i just i found it really i found tom hardy really funny and I just I found the effects completely fine. I love the dual personalities, and I think they captured the '90s Venom that I grew up with really well. Um, and I absolutely adored it. And when I read afterwards that Tom Hardy said all of his favorite bits have been cut out, I thought if they released that version, and it's like <laughs> another hour of just Tom Hardy sweating through two jumpers, count me in. I I absolutely loved it. I thought it was amazing and I had no problem with it at all. And I'm looking forward to the next two films. <laughs> they are making a sequel, aren't they? Yeah, it's already done. They're just editing it. Um, Andy Circus is directing it um, and they're going to do a third one. But like I said, it's, it's kind of like for me, it's like the Witcher TV series where I like, I like the character and they were kind of true to the character, you know, as for, well, true enough for me, as far as I'm concerned, as a kind yes. of casual fan, Venom looks cool. And it was a really simple story. And, and I was pulled through it by just Tom Hardy, just basically sweating and panicking and cracking me up. Why do um, you think that there was a certain amount of, if I may say, venom towards the film uh, when it was released? Because it was had quite a mixed response, didn't it? Yeah, because that's why I didn't watch it because I thought oh, I, I do like Venom, and it, and it was never it was never anywhere I could watch like on you know it was never like on Prime and I could just chuck it on. But after two years, I'm going to have to pay for this because I really really want to see it. And yeah. uh, when when people said that Tom Hardy's really good in it, but the story's really generic, and you know I guess it's just not grand enough. Maybe it's a little bit too kind of character driven. But I, right. I I had no problem with it at all. And I watched it with Faye, who literally the only time she's ever seen Venom is like on the maximum carnage Mega Drive cartridge. So she has no clue who it is. Beyond I believe you have suit. a special edition of that. Fact, yes, I've got, the, I've got the QVC limited to 500. Yes. With the leather bound book. Yes. And the pins, obviously. <laughs> um, but but with like she was like found it amusing and i was kind of filling her in on like little bits of trivia as we went through about the character i i literally and even thinking about it now i think it's the only film i've seen as an adult that came close to just making me feel like a kid again like oh, thinking nice. oh my god this is a film that i guess like people talk about the goonies almost like i I've got very few Venom comics and I'm not like a huge comic reader now, but when I was watching it, I thought, Oh my God, this is, this is like the film that I would always hope they would have made. Yeah. Um, and so I love the fact. That almost like a kind of stranger things appeal, you know, the way people watch stranger things and it's like the ultimate, the ultimate film or TV series that they never had in their youth, but they loved it. Yeah, and I th I can I can understand what people because it is like if you break it down, the story is very generic, and like the fact they just say, "Oh, yeah, there's the bad guy, it's riot and stuff," like whatever. But I think if you like the character, then it's just it's fun and it's self-contained, and mm. it it what there was no like nods. Yes, Stanley obviously rocks up, bless him, but it wasn't like they were trying to build a world. It was just this is the story, this these are the characters, and this is it. 
and in that in that sense it reminded me a little bit of ant-man which i also enjoyed because again it's, it's just like contained yes that's its thing and i fancy mm. paul red what so yeah i, I think yeah I, I i absolutely loved it and i'd happily watch it again tonight because i i just I, I don't know why it was like i had such a bad response i need to watch this because it keeps evading me um yeah, it is like I said, it is. You, it's a fiver for the 1080p version on Prime at the moment. But uh, yeah, it's like, um, it's it's a weird one, by the way. When you put it on, it looks like it's two hours long, but it's 90 minutes. There's like a weird 15 minute cartoon after the credits, which I did watch. Really? I think, it, but yeah, it's it's 90 minutes long. But yeah, it's it's fine. fine. It's just it's fine. Yeah, good. Yeah, I will be watching that then. I didn't realize it'd actually be good. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's just Tom Hardy just basically talking to himself, Fine. Uh, which yeah, good. So it's a bit like Locke then. <laughs> yeah, except he's not putting on a really broad, wide-ranging Welsh accent. <laughs> okay, um, well, I'll just do a quick one, a quick rundown of Navy Seals, um, which Ooh. has got to be eighty-nine or ninety, maybe even a bit. Earlier, I think ni- I think ni- I think ninety. I know the video yeah. game was ninety. So. Yeah, so he's got a pretty good cast. Charlie Sheen, Michael Bean, Paxton, yeah. Haysbert, Joanne Wally Kilmer. I don't. Yeah, should have just about been Wally Kilmer, maybe. Anyway, so anyway, um, Sheen is kind of one of the main characters, but he's a bit of a, he's just a massive racist, really. Anyway, so Bean is the kind of leader of the Navy SEAL team, and they've got to take down Beirut-based uh, Beirut terrorists because they're stockpiling missiles. That's really as basic, basic as it gets. Um, it's basically trying to do for the Frogmen what Top Gun did for pilots. It's a massive ad, like the lifestyle, the brotherhood, the laughs, the thrills, the checks, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, Titus Welliver crops up at one point, and he's got black hair, unbelievably. Much like he does in Man on a Ledge, which I'll be discussing in a bit. Good. Um Joanne Wally Kilmer's role is pretty much redundant. She's a journalist who just hangs around so that we can see some training montages, really. She doesn't even <laughs> have a romance like aspect or anything. The, the film does make some token efforts not to paint everyone in the Middle East as a terrorist, but it isn't very complex or anything in its shades. Um, it's pretty pedestrian in its direction uh, by Lewis Teague. Oh, yeah, I was going to mention something about Casino Royale, by the way, while we're here, Um, is that it's directed by Martin Campbell. And, of course, he directed Goldeneye as well. So he's rebooted the Bond franchise twice. Oh, really? Which is pretty cool. Uh, Really quickly as well, if you're going to do a callback to a previous review, Mm. one of the things I forgot to say about Venom is that the main kind of the main facility where all this sort of experimenting is going on, people literally just wander in and out. That's what I wanted to say. Um, yeah, so Navy Seals, it's like it's got quite a bit of action in it, but it's got quite a bit of bickering as well between in the team and that. Uh, and it's really mostly about how Charlie Sheen's character is a bit of a hothead. He gets someone, one of his own teammates, killed basically, and he has to redeem himself in the end. It's a pr- like the last half hour is pretty much solid action, so it's pretty good. Um, mm. but uh, oh god, oh my god, the, the final final fight is like having a scrap underwater right so they're you know it's quite tense so they're struggling with each other underwater these two dudes and um and it you know they're running out of breath and stuff and it's it's quite exciting and then um one of them 
slashes the other one's throat but it's so badly done because it's really close up and you can see the knife like like near his throat and he motions to like slash across his throat but of course it's really close up and you can see that it hasn't made any contact and there's literally no blood so you're expecting him to like float down you cut cuts away the body is floating down but it's like you've just had your throat slash it would just be like there should be like a plume of blood coming out of this but nothing absolutely nothing that's really that's a really it's odd weird. oversight considering that's like the final moment of like yes we finally got this dude it's like oh it's just really really weirdly underwhelming anyway but most of the action's okay up to that point um it almost feels more like a war movie like an old-fashioned kind of you know where eagles dare type war movie than a regular action movie uh, like it's quite grounded um but it's it just isn't quite enough style or enough drama enough dramatic standoffs you know to match the likes of top gun really it doesn't have that camp appeal either top gun and i suppose as well from what you're saying it hasn't got the ending like men of war where dolph lundgren shoves a stalagmite through trevor goddard's face and he wanders around trying to speak before collapsing it's a slightly less epic ending than yeah that. that just doesn't sound quite yeah that sounds a lot better. If they'd inserted that ending into it, it'd be a perfect movie. <laughs> but yeah, obviously it's good. It's it's very watchable. And obviously if you want to see the likes of Michael Bean, Bill Paxton, uh, Dennis Haysbert and stuff, then yeah, it's cool. But it's pretty average. That is it, Navy Seals and it's on Netflix. It's one of those films that I've always kind of fancied watching, but it's always like a mid ranger. And I think oh, it is a mid ranger. Yeah. If you didn't, if you didn't watch it as a kid, like um, yes, I don't know, like if like I'm a big fan of like Predator Two, but then maybe if I watch that now, I'd think oh, I, don't, I haven't got the nostalgia for it. So if you haven't got the nostalgia for Navy Seals, then you go back to it now and think, well, it's just an okay action film. Yes, um, it's definitely a mid ranger. I will move on to W Delta Z, or as it's called on Amazon Prime, Waz, W-A-Z. Uh, this is a film that stars... I, have to, I, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to have to get up some information about it, because I cannot remember all of it, <laughs> uh, which says a lot. So this is, this is a film that stars... It's I've already forgotten Shang. the title. Waz. Well, yeah, Come sorry. on. W Delta Z. Um, it stars Stellan Skarsgård, uh, Melissa George, Selma Blake, and Tom Hardy's in it for two seconds. Mm-hmm. And it's effect. It's effectively about uh, Stellan Skarsgård plays a, a cop called Eddie Argo, who is sort of hunting down a serial killer that is taking people. And it's all about this thing called the Price Equation, which is about how uh, does anything in nature have um what's the what's the term will they will they something choose to kill themselves over someone they love so what it boils down to is the killer kind of tying down two people facing each other in chairs and with a button that electrocutes the other one and they torture that person and how long can they put up with it before pressing the button and saying actually leave me alone and just kill the other person outright like it just electrocutes them now the thing is, considering, and weirdly, Dennis Penis is in this as well. Paul Kay is the person who explains the price equation. Hmm. So it, the, the the thing is, right, fundamentally, and I don't know if this is just be, being a negative, Nancy, but 
if I was opposite someone that I loved and I was being tortured to death by like having my nails removed and like my chest and nipples cut off and my genitals mutilated, regardless of the amount of love I have for someone else, at some point I'd think, Do you know what? I'm gonna press this button almost out of reflex because there's just so much you can take. Yes. Before yeah, like it's just not a question of, oh yeah, you chose to do that so you don't love that person. It's just you're just being you're being tortured to death. So yeah. It's not really the most scientific of experiments. <laughs> and when you kind of think, well, of course, of course, you would probably just press the button because you're being tortured to death horribly and slowly. And when you if you think like that, the whole film is rendered completely ridiculous because it's got these sort of seven ish overtones of, mm. you know, like it's really like it's really, it's really saying something about this philosophical human condition. You think, no, it's not. It's just, when just, when like, was it made? Two thousand and seven. Okay. Um, and Stella, there's another weird thing I noticed in this film is Stellan Skarsgård voice in this. I don't know. It reminded me a little bit of Mickey Rourke in Rumblefish, where it's almost like he was speaking t- too quietly, so they've had to like ramp up the volume in post. Uh-huh. So what happens is whenever anyone else talks, like Melissa George, it's fine. But then whenever he talks, it's like oddly close and loud. So right. it's 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 an odd sound mix as well um but yeah it's it's just like a it got reasonably well reviewed and people compared it to like seven and saw but mm. it's not it's 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 like a it's a nasty sort of rip off not a rip off like a budget version of those the camera's always really close as well they're going down these corridors and they horrible horrible scenes where they're just in these foul drug dens and the cameras the camera's like really leering over things and Stellan Skarsgård has played out to be sort of um, like a, a bit of a, you know, an anti-hero, like, oh, he's a chain smoking Bernard Cop, but he's, he's an inherently nice man. And and yet there's a scene in it where he goes to like a, a drug den and there's a woman who's like a young, um, sort of attractive, but obviously drug addicted woman who offers to give him a blowjob for like seven quid. And he he's he sort of says no no and then he's like talking to a like four-year-old son who's playing with the toys if he's kind of like a surrogate father and i thought well but what you would do if you're really a nice man is you would take that child out of this situation because he's living in a brothel as his mother prostitutes herself so don't come in and ruffle his hair and then we're supposed to think you're a nice bloke (laughs) um so yeah the whole film was kind of it felt oddly misguided right is um, um, what part does Tom Hardy play in this? He he's I don't know why he's in this film. I was trying to work this out because this is two thousand and seven, and I suppose it's at the start of when he was kind of ramping up in in films. But yeah, he, he plays a really minor part in it. Yeah, it, I think he just, did, I, I think Tom Hardy did have some struggles possibly around that time. So no, after that he was in one of the Star Trek movies, and I think. He had some personal issues around that time and then made a bit of a comeback after that. So maybe it was during that period. Around yeah, the past period. Um, yeah, it is. Um, it's 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 kind of if you like kind of um, like nasty films and maybe if you have an interest in the price equation and you, and you, it's something that you think, oh, yeah, maybe if you do love someone enough, you'll put up with anything. But I just think that's a bit of a romanticized ideal. I so for me, it just when it kind of explained itself, I thought mm, this whole mm. this whole thing feels a bit silly, to be honest. So yeah, it wasn't. It wouldn't be one I'd watch again or recommend, really. Okay, what what is it available on? Just in case, Prime. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, well, in that case, I'll I'll talk about heavy metal. This is on Netflix. This is a weird early '80s anthology of animated short movies. Okay. Um, and it features tunes by the likes of Black Sabbath, Cheap Trick, Journey, Devo. But also oh, this. Okay. But also there's this r- really rich orchestral score by Elmer Bernstein, which is odd as well so that was strange but yeah they're all all the stories are set in different places and times there's like a dystopian future with like a world in chaos corrupt cops and stuff there's space station there's second world war but they're all kind of linked by this super powerful green orb which is floating around it gives gives it has the power to take or give life um and it's got a really wide range of themes and styles. It starts with kind of bawdy 70s sex comedy and ends with really sweeping high fantasy. Uh, <laughs> the, the final story was actually my favourite, but it was also the most conventional in a way. It was like a very much a sci-fi fantasy epic. You do love a, a bit of whimsy, Rupert. Well, there's a lot of... Uh, is it Roger Dean? We think we talked about him before. You know the artist, the guy who does the yes artwork, yeah, yeah, and uh, and all the psychosis stuff. It's quite a bit of that style in it, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, and that include involves a very kind of capable warrior woman. She does take her clothes off constantly as well, naturally. But it's just oh. by that point, you're like, well, I've seen a woman on the screen. She is going to take her clothes off. Um, and the story yeah the stories are, are quite varied but they're all pretty lame in and of themselves it's really the the kind of visual style um and the fast pace and the ideas that keep you interested the visual ideas anyway because a lot of the frames genuinely lo- look like a moving comic book um the way they come off the pages got that's um almost almost like a, a watercolor quality to the artwork um you know which you see in a lot of those sorts of films from the 80s, especially British animation, like When the Wind Blows and The Snowman and things like that. Obviously, this is very different to those, but it's that <laughs> same kind of slightly scrappy, but but equally, at the same time, weirdly elegant kind of watercolour style. Yeah, like Take um, On Me by Aha. Yeah, I know you yeah. Um John Candy rocks up in this. Of course he does. Uh, in a deeply unfunny voiceover for one of the stories. Um oh. All of the humour throughout is just really adolescent. I think that's why I like the last story best because it just does it has barely any dialogue in it because all of the humour is really adolescent and just sexist. Um, oh. It could possibly, I would say that it could possibly be recommended to those with an interest in weird 80s fantasy animation. You know, the kind of Ralph Bakshi type stuff. Fire and Ice and, uh, and all the Hobbit you know, that weird 80s animation, which they just couldn't do for now. Um, mm. And apparently it was going to be uh, remade or rebooted possibly um, a few years ago, Heavy Metal, um, with segments directed by like David Fincher and Guillermo del Toro and Zack Snyder. Good. But, but no one wanted to stump up the cash. Ugh. And I can kind of see why, because it is abs- it's the definition of a cult movie, really. Um Apparently there is a series on Netflix, which is kind of a, a spiritual update of it called Love, Death and Robots, which I ha- I've seen that advertised. Yeah, right. OK, but apparently it is still very much just objectifying women in the same way. So 
I'm not sure I can be bothered with that. Like, it's an interesting little example of adult animation, something which is, let's face it, pretty much obsolete now. Uh, So so it's interesting from that perspective. And it it is very, very weird. And it does have a lot of good visual ideas, but just the relentless juvenile nature of the humor and the just leering over ridiculously curvaceous women gets a bit tiresome to be honest yeah it's it's all like humor is always a real problem and things like that because yeah. it, it, it because they tend to be like sort of short segments it's like you know they're going to think all right we've got this is crap humor but we have to fit as much crap humor in 20 minutes so it's really crap it's yeah. a constant crap yeah so, well yeah. It, it's the john candy one is especially tedious because in that it's all a bit it's a slightly like rapey story anyway um about this kind of brute um just romping around the place killing <laughs> killing people and having sex with women not necessarily fully consensual and and it's got john candy like who's i guess it's like meant to be the 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 creature's inner voice and it's like he's doing all these really harsh things really hideous violence and stuff and then john candy will uh, will make some quip in his head he's like oh i didn't expect that or something and it's like oh my god this is really really misjudged yeah really misjudged yeah so mm. i'll I'll probably give that a skip rupert to be honest i think you should um so the next one I've got here is a film with our boy Patrick Wilson in it called The Hollow Point. I don't know if you've seen this. Have I have you not seen this. I have not. Mm. It's one of those films. It, it, it's uh, one of those films sort of set. It's on set on the sort of Mexican border, mm. and he is a, a sheriff with a slightly dicky past that I fancy. And it, it's one of those films where like a. It feels like a very, it's a small town sort of story, you know, like a lot of, a lot of double crossings, a lot of shady characters, but like quite mm-hmm. a kind of taut, taut story. Um, it stars Patrick Wilson, uh, Lynn Collins, John Leguizamo, James Belushi, and Keely, Ian McShane. Uh, okay. Whose a- accent is it consistent? <laughs> who, who can tell? I can. It is. I can. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, it's sort of, it's a film about. Uh, the, the sort of titular hollow point is a single bullet that um, uh, Patrick Wilson finds on a highway and it, that falls off the back of a truck and it kind of leads him down this path to um, gun running and uh, bullets being used as armor piercing cop killer rounds and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of money involved, a lot of people trying to get their hands on it. And it is, I enjoyed it, but it is a dark film. It's kind yeah. of one of those films with no real redeeming characters in it. Um, and, I think what kind of what it does to sort of stand out is it will have scenes of quite uh, shocking violence and not shocking as in um, not shocking as in like really explicit and kind of wince inducing, but shocking as if you generally don't expect certain things to happen. You're like, oh, okay, Mm. that that just just happened. Um, And Patrick Wilson's obviously really good in it, but it's only really one to watch if you like if you're happy to watch a load of kind of almost irredeemable characters uh sort of shoot their way through a like a a story which i know a lot 
not everyone is willing to do because mm. some of the problems I've had, especially with horror films, is if everyone in the film is just detestable, then I just think I don't really care who lives or dies. I just want this film yeah. to be over with. But I, because I have a love for both Patrick Wilson and Ian McShane, who has a really, really, really funny final scene. I, it's almost okay. worth it just for Ian McShane's final scene. Um, but yeah, it's it's not overly long. It's like 90, 100 minutes, and it's a, a decent kind of um, deep south thriller. Good. What what's this available on? I should really pay attention to these things. I think <laughs> it is on Netflix. Okay. It's either Netflix when, or Prime. When was it made? Two thousand and six. Sixteen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because there's a period after Deadwood where Ian McShane was in every film. Remember that. Uh, but yeah, he's a good actor, and <laughs> he's a very commanding presence. And I do like Patrick Wilson. I'm deeply in love with Patrick Wilson. Ian McShane is brilliant in this because he plays like a real nasty, well, alcoholic kind of burned out sheriff. It's absolutely fine. Oh, yeah. That sounds quite in his Deadwood wheelhouse then. That sounds good. Yeah, Yeah. I might have to check that out, actually. I do like a... So is it like on the Mexican border, you say? So Texas? Yes, yeah. Mm. And he's like on a... He works on the sort of border town, uh, which is obviously the... It's one of those films because when it started off and he was was mentioning like the... um, Mexican drug runners and I thought and like shifting ammunition across the border. I thought I oh, don't turn into just a massive shootout against Mexicans. But mm-hmm. I like the fact that it, it had it mentions these sort of larger issues, but then it's actually just kind of a small story, which is good. About yeah. a handful of characters. It is an area that I I uh, there are really good films made uh, in that kind of borderland area. Stuff like No Country for Old Men and The Three Barrels of Melchiadas Estrada. And they're good thrillers set around that time. It's a good place for moral ambiguity, I would say, if it's an intelligent film. Yeah. Uh, you know, it can be quite a... And you can get some really beautiful um, sort of scenery as well. Yes. And, you know, you know it's going to be hot and sweaty and people are going to be banging back nice cold brewskis. Good. Yes. And there's a, something slightly desolate about that backdrop, which can be reflected in the characters, I suppose. Just gazing out into the endless kind of desert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm all, I'm all over that. I'm all, yeah. So I might watch that, but yeah, I can understand it wouldn't necessarily be for everybody. Um, okay, let's talk about Awakenings on Prime. Is this a Robin Williams film? It is a Robin Williams film. Okay, can't remember why it was that. Is it Robert De Niro as well? It is Robert De Niro as well. So. It's based on. I've never seen. (laughs) It's based on the book by Oliver Sacks, Doctor Oliver Sacks. It's vaguely autobiographical, I think, Um, and set in, I want to say, nineteen sixty nine. I think it's about that time. And so basically, Robin Williams plays this sad sack doctor working at a mental health facility with it, and it's basically there's it's got loads of like catatonic patients. They're just completely unresponsive, and. He starts a very unofficial drug trial, uh, which basically just um, oh Peter Stamari rocks up actually at that point because he's going on about this drug. Peter Stamari does he does he does turn up in these places, but um, yeah, so he starts this drug trial, um, Robin Williams, and it and he he tests it first on Robert De Niro's character, who has been catatonic since uh, he was just a young boy. So, and it brings them out of their stupor and the results are unbelievably like 
sudden and uh and it's an absolute like kind of a well an awakening for all of them um but is it a long-term cure that's the thing now um it is very much like robin williams kind of it's his thing right you've got the unconventional professional comes mm-hmm. in shakes up the system you know you look at like good morning vietnam goodwill hunting patch adams all that stuff it's perfectly like his kind of thing it's directed by Perry, penny marshall who made like pretty mainstream hits like big and a league of their own that sort of thing right, um, okay. it rides a very very fine line between the sort of sensitive and sentimental but it never quite slips into total saccharine sentimentality thankfully I think part of it is because part of that is because it is based on a true story. So it's not just an unresounding success all round sort of thing. It's not just a miracle. Uh, it is quite honest about the limits of science. And so that's pretty cool. And, and it's it, the best bits are really where they are waking up. The, the, you know, these previously catatonic people are waking up because what's quite moving about it is that they've all been catatonic for well 30 years or more so they're suddenly waking up and they're in a completely different world sort of thing it's Mm. like everything has changed it's like they've just been in a coma that whole time so they don't know how to adjust and stuff and they're quite they're excited yet equally horrified by the world um it's it's a really good reminder of Robin Williams' talent because he was such a good physical actor. And I, I don't just mean like the big moments, but it's the way that he can, he could convey someone's mental state through like subtle movements and tensions in his body or the slightest glint in his eyes. It's so cleverly done. He's so watchable. The way like he'll, his shoulders will tense up as he's talking to someone or something. And it, it says so much about his character. Um, and Robert De Niro is really good as well. And it's quite unusual to see Robert De Niro in this kind of role because he's such a a bundle of like positivity, basically. He's such a a hopeful just he 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 just wants to grab life and he's so excited um about this newfound awakening. But it's not all rosy sort of thing basically mm-hmm. but i won't spoil it because it's worth, definitely worth a watch it's definitely recommended if you want to see some really good nuanced performances um and yeah it's a good robin williams picture i mean it's like it's very much it's not really a stretch for him at that point in his career but it's what, it's um, quintessential when was it made sorry what year was it made i say early 90s 1991 oh, right. okay. so yeah so it would have been pretty much the peak of his, yeah, the peak of his kind of career, his popularity anyway. Oh, yeah, peak of his career, um, just before Toys, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose for Robert De Niro, it was, this was where he was exploring quite a few different, more interesting middle-aged roles, because he would have done sort of Cape Fear around this time as well. So, yeah, not, no. hmm, and it wouldn't have been long after, what's it called, Midnight Run, stuff like that. So he was... <sighs> So yeah, both actors on top form, and um, yeah, so I definitely recommended Awakenings at some time. That sounds like a film I'll watch one day, but yes. not one that for me I would just chuck on. Um, not when I got Cellar Dweller to watch. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, the next one for me is a film called Searching, 
which is a 2018 uh, mystery film starring John Cho. Um, I was surprised at this because I'm looking at it on Wikipedia now and it says that it's the uh, the first mainstream Hollywood thriller headlined by an Asian American actor, which was startling. That's a startling fact. Um, That's incredible. But not as startling as John Cho's hair in some of this film, <laughs> which is kind of... Um, it's like a side parting, but it's like a bouffant. I, 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 sometimes I was you're looking at it, and it's you think I can't because it's like this like black net, this sort of this sort of nest. You're like, what's happening with your hair? But um, yeah, on, on a more serious note, um, it's a film about a man whose daughter, sixteen year old daughter, goes missing, um, and it's kind of presented purely through much like Unfriended Dark Web, presented purely through screens and mobile phones and CCTV cameras. And it does a good job of, of it. It is a, it's, I don't want to talk too much about the plot because it kind of unveils nicely. And John Cho is good as a kind of father who's just wondering what has happened. You know, all this, he's getting all these like facts through uh, from Deborah Messing, who plays the detective sort of in charge of the missing person's, missing person's case. And he, he is... There's a quite a, a heart heartbreaking opening sequence that just shows through <laughs> different versions of Windows from like three point one and ninety five and XP, like this family's <laughs> like uh, this um, a family sort of pictures and and the um, and the, the the mother's sort of descent into a, a cancer related illness and then it goes into remission and then it she sort of succumbs to it and that's very sort of cleverly done and that was quite sort of sad, um, but. It does fall into the problem of um, ramping up the thriller aspect sometimes. Um, and there's a moment, there are three times when you think the film is about to end and it doesn't. And usually these things really get on my nerves. But in this case, mm. I'm I'm glad they were kind of like slightly false endings and it leads to an actual ending. Because the one time I thought the film would end and I thought, what? Like that's, that's just... That's just like a story, if you know what I mean. It's just oh, like fine. it goes yeah. from so A to B. If they, if it's a false finish, but it would have been a crap finish, then it's not so bad, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want to say too much about it, but it's it's like, again, it's like, let me have a look. I think it, it felt like a really quick film. It's like 102 minutes, and it's it it's got, deals with some pretty heavy-duty things um, at the start quite nicely. And then, yeah, it turns into like a decent thriller. And John Cho is, is pretty good, considering you're basically just looking at his face for the entire film. And he does a yeah. good job of someone who's thinking, where's my daughter gone? She, yeah. Uh, anyone seen her? So, yeah, I quite liked it. And again, it's I think this, this genre of like the unfriended, uh, everything through a screen, it still feels fresh enough to get away with trying new things like this. So I'm still on board with it, you know? Not like yeah. found footage where you think it's either going to be really good or really bad. Yes. Well, I mean, the found footage thing, uh, that was exciting when it first happened. It's just 20 years later, like, yeah, I'm not sure there's, <laughs> I'm not sure it's got legs. But yeah, oh, that sounds good then, because I, uh, I did like a look at this, and I like John Cho. He's very good in the Star Trek films. So... I'll, I will definitely watch this one. Yeah, keep an eye out for his hair. Okay. Someone, <laughs> someone needs to. Can I miss it? Um, <laughs> what What is that available on? That was Netflix. Okay, good. Okay, let's move on to Rambo from 2008. Because I watched the last one. <laughs> Working backwards to the Rambo films. At least yeah. they'll get good eventually. Yeah. Uh, so this is from 2008. And... Uh, so the story is that John Rambo is he's 
he's having a whale of a time selling snakes in Thailand. And um, <laughs> he's asked by a group of missionaries, Christian missionaries, to take them into Burma. And it doesn't go well. And some of them are captured in a rather kind of uh, like cannibal Holocaust kind of way. And, and so Rambo becomes the reluctant leader of a mercenary group who are hired to retrieve the missionaries. And it's like a, a real motley crew of bickering hard men, basically. Um, it's possibly the most violent film I've ever seen, maybe. Like, probably even more so than Last Blood. Like, he tears out someone's throat with his bare hands at one point. He slashes someone's guts out. He uses a mounted gun to shoot people in half. Uh, and, yeah. And he's he got stops so- for a coffee as well, doesn't he? So it's quite violent for that kind of <laughs> premise. Uh, for all its kind of, like, whiny overtures about real-world re- relevance, it's just it's just an, a, a kind of boy's own adventure story, really, except just with blood and guts flying everywhere, eyeballs, all sorts. Yes. So uh, it did occur to me, though, this was made in 2008. And of course, Burma really came into the headlines more recently because of um, the systematic slaughter of the Rohingya Muslims, which has been in the news a lot more. And I'm wondering what would, I don't know, would Rambo fight for them? I don't know. I don't know, it's because it's, it, it feels like Burma was chosen here just because it's a bit secretive and probably pretty nasty. And so it was almost like, well, no one's going to care if we demonise um, Burma. It's almost avoiding real world politics in a way. Not sure they'd choose that now sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, I don't think it really matters about the background politics. It's. It's it's ridiculous attitude to military tactics and the way that it revels in gore is too kind of silly to be taken seriously. So it's actually kind of hilarious a lot of the time. It's it's a revenge exploitation movie, really. There are just really, really bad guys. And now the not so bad guys are going to splatter them against the walls. Um, um, that's fine because they're bad. Yeah. So it's basically that, you know, the the military camp attack scene from Predator It's basically that for 90 minutes. Um, I think I've got a feeling I've seen this film. I think um, we, we, yeah. When I mentioned last, but I think you mentioned you'd seen this, and it was seemed really brief, and it does seem, really yeah, brief, yeah. Um, yeah. That is, I, yeah. I remember thinking it was like seventy minutes long. Yeah, it's it's got really nice music by Brian Tyler. That is one of the few genuine high points. Uh, it's it's just a big macho fantasy, really. It's more fun than Last Blood. Um, it's ridiculous. Uh, it can't really be taken seriously. And yeah, it's okay. Oh, but so better than Last Blood then? Oh yeah, better than Last Blood. Last Blood was so... Oh, it's just so miserable and so questionable. Um, whereas this is much more about kind of army men, you know? So it can almost dodge a lot of those moral questions by being, well, you know... They are doing their job on both sides, if you see what I mean. So yeah. it makes it a bit easier to swallow. And it's uh, spectacularly violent. Even more violent than, than The Last Blood. Yeah, I think Last Blood was more viciously violent. Uh, I think this is just stupid. Like When he gets on the big mounted gun at the end, it just like people are exploding <laughs> as the bullets hit them. It's ridiculous. 
so it becomes kind of laughable after a while. But it's an easy watch in a in a way, in a mindless way. Are you going to work your way back through even further? Uh, yeah, I don't even know what comes before this one. The third world, isn't it? Just Rambo Is it? Three. Yeah, really. Wow. Well, you can just big... play them. Just play the Mega Drive game and get the gist. You'll be fine. <laughs> I'm sure I'll pick up the plot from there. It's actually a really good game on the Mega Drive. It's probably better than the film. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's Rambo 2008. Available now on Netflix. No. Prime. <laughs> well, it's always one film, or the other. It's one or the other. Um, a film I did watch, and I thought about you when I put this film on, and and it's um, Man on a Ledge, an, a thriller from 2012. And it stars someone I have never seen in a film, but I know that you have your reservations about Sam Worthington. Sam Worthington, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you seen this? No, mostly because it's got Sam Worthington in it, I've got to well, say. Well, I actually, I was doubtful because it's got Ed Burns in it and I cannot stand that Ooh. man's voice. It's just confidence. You just got to use confidence. Clear your throat. Come back when your your throat is fine. <laughs> um, so he's in this. Uh, and so the story is Sam Worthington literally... Uh, Escapes from prison and then he has a lobster and chips, which is a bit of a bizarre meal in his in the in this hotel room, and then he gets out in a ledge and draws attention to himself. Right. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elizabeth Banks turns up to talk him down. It's got quite a nice cast. It's got Jamie Bell, Elizabeth Banks, Ed Burns, Anthony Mackie, and Ed Harris. And the I've got to say, one of the standout things for me on this um was when he's on the ledge, the camera works really nice. And when you see what he can see when he looks down, I've got a fear of heights. And I got that kind of, you know, when you kind of feet tingle and you think, oh, I feel weird. <laughs> don't, don't, don't look down, Sam. Um, but then balancing that, balancing that, that, that I liked was his hair, which <laughs> appears to be like a kind of, like a, almost a, um, Jean-Claude Van Damme hard target esque mullet for no reason. It's just got this, wow. like, it's like slightly too long at the back. They just cut it. Um, especially because you've just been in prison, surely someone would cut it. Um, and so the film is, he's on a ledge, it's all a mystery as to why he's there. And it becomes clear that the reason that he's going around this, he's one, trying to clear his name for something that he has been, uh, a, a theft he has been charged with and the reason he's in prison. And they're also robbing a building on the opposite side and Jamie Bell is sort of there with his, uh, his partner played by Genesis Rodriguez. And it's all about perfect timing and the problem with that is it's instantly unrealistic so you've got you've got this whole thing which apparently he has planned somehow over a two-year period from behind bars mm-hmm. um to and they've got all this like really heavy duty and extremely expensive equipment um to do you know so he's kind of like talking to his brother through like a headset he's on the ledge drawing a crowd drawing attention to himself or they break into a building a- across the way right. and Jamie Bell, I've seen him in some films and he he can be awesome, but in this he kind of just bickers with his extremely hot Latino girlfriend and mm-hmm. it, and the way they approach what they're doing completely destroys any tension that is supposed to be building up because they're constantly being really jokey right. um, and and also when you pick the plot apart there are bits in it that really don't hold together the one bit I will say without being too spoilertastic is a section when they see uh, like a like a heat sensor and they spray it with a fire extinguisher to cool it down. And they're like, oh, that wasn't in the plans. We didn't know that. We've got to think on our feet. So they kind of spray this heat sensor and like run underneath it before it cools down. But then later on, 
when the police turn up and kind of uh, when they're sort of looking into the heist they say oh why did the alarm go off and they say well they've they've got these heat pads they open up underneath the camera to bring it back up to normal temperature so Mm. the alarm went off and i thought well if they didn't realize that there was a camera there that worked on heat sensors and they had to use a fire extinguisher to cool it down thinking on their feet why then would they have heat pads specifically to bring a camera back up to a certain temperature in this bag that they've got, which has got like huge industrial drills in it and stuff. It's kind of fun to just, if you just had on the background to watch, but the plot is preposterous and it's more about the best part of it. Basically was just the sense of just height and the fear of heights that obviously yeah. um, Sam Worthington is, is putting across, but yeah, it, as a, as a thriller, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's got like this ridiculous, like really cheesy ending sequence as well that mm. made me dry heave. So it's is it not... one of those ending sequences where you get the sense that test audiences hated the original ending, so they put in something else? It is very much like they chucked on a sequence at the end. Right. Uh, William Sadler's in it as well, so that's good. But uh-huh. yeah, it's very much like it just fades out, fades in. It's like, oh, you had just a little two minute to, to you know make everyone happy. Is Does Sam Worthington sell it? I mean, you, you're not familiar with him. Does he, has he made no. you want to go through his back catalogue? No, uh, Titus Welliver's in it. Uh, Good. He's quite commanding, although he's wearing the most ridiculous jumper I've seen in a film in a while. It's like a he turns up, he's kind of head of a SWAT team, and he's just got this. It's like a really deep chocolate brown turtleneck. Like, what? What? And jet black hair and eyebrows. And of course, yeah, and because it's got like um, because it's got such a small cast, you, you it's the Sam Worthington finds out that like, yeah, Ed Harris, who's, you know, openly like a corrupt businessman who's behind it all only ever works with like corrupt cops. And you look at Sam Worthington as he's try- as he works, it's frowns thinking, who could these two corrupt cops be? Could it be the only other two cops we've been introduced to in Anthony <laughs> Mackie and Titus Welliver, perhaps Sam. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really silly. It's a really silly film. Is it but yeah, enjoyable also, enough though to? Yeah, it? yeah, it, it's quick. It's it's fast moving, and there is you know there's mm. some nice. Uh, there's, it's fast moving, and there's like Ed Burns is in it, wheezing his way through every sentence. Um, Sam Worthington's accent. I genuinely don't know if he was trying to be Australian or American. It was so over the place. I don't even know if he was yeah. if if that's just how he talks. Uh, no, I mean it, it slipped a bit in Avatar, to be honest. But yeah. I, I don't understand why he gets employed. Just going to say it. I, well, I'd be intrigued. Just, to just... He hasn't got the command, I don't think. He just doesn't have the gravitas. In this film, it does feel like it could have been absolutely anyone on that ledge. It doesn't... Right. Um, it does. I didn't think, oh, I don't know what Rupert's got against him. He just seemed like... He just seems like anyone, really. Yes, well, yeah, that's the thing. But there was a period when he was headlining movies left, right and centre. It was weird. And I didn't see any of them, so I escaped that. No. You mean you'd never seen Terminator Salvation? Well, well I did, and I don't remember being in it. <laughs> well, I suppose you'll be rubbing against Christian Bale. You're probably not going to be noticed as much, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So that's fine on the ledge. Netflix, completely, utterly average and quite silly. <laughs> um, Robocop 3 is on Netflix. Because I've never you seen this watch- before. Oh, so you did watch it? Oh, yeah, I've never seen this before. Uh so OCP is still planning on stripping out the slums to build their Delta City. Now uh, this underground resistance has formed. Um, 
based on the kind of community that is being turfed out. And they want to prevent the rehab officers from taking control and cracking down and cracking heads. Um, so, and, and Robocop ends up joining the resistance army. OCP OCP gets help from a Japanese corporation as well, who use their own ninja robots who just look like humans uh, in the battle. Um, so this is the one where, well, uh, Peter Weller has been replaced uh, by Robert John Burke, and um, who's fine, you know, he's pretty much the same. <laughs> but he, the, of course, the thing, the thing is is that we've seen what Robocop before he became Robocop. That happened in the first film. So you can't really do that again. So basically, whoever plays him now is just going to be a robot. That's it. Um, Lewis is played by Nancy Allen again, and she's still distinguished by being a rubbish cop. And it's it was my main issue with the first film as well, really. But she's still rubbish now. It's a, it's a source of great frustration for me. That she never does anything with any use. Well, um, bad policing is 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 bad policing and roofs are things that uh, run in in our podcast. Um, it's a hallmark of action films in the eighties, nineties, especially nineties. Anyway, it's directed by Fred Decker, who he has done well in the past in bringing a kind of lightness to dark material, like Night of the Creeps and the Monster Squad. Yes, that's the Monster Squad is the one I yeah, yeah that's the one I but the only of course he also did the recent Predator movie which ah. uh, which did not need lightness brought to it anyway it's fine getting rid of the extreme violence I can I can understand that but it's also what it really lacks Robocop three is the original's like satirical edge uh, like as if younger viewers w- wouldn't have the intelligence to pick up on that I don't know. Um, Robocop himself is quite a boring character, obviously. But what kept the original so interesting was um, was partly Lewis's attempts to draw Murphy out, but also the rogue, rose gallery of like funny villains. Um, uh, but and also there was, uh, of course, in the original, there's Robocop's attempts to uncover his past. So you had these elements which made the essential boringness of the robot more interesting. But none of those things are here anymore. <laughs> Also, I've got to say that um, Robocop Two is is a really dark and unpleasant film. Yes. So this very much. So this is very much going the other direction, much more positive. I, I do like its positive perspective on extreme poverty. Basically, I mean, the people band together and create a functioning society, um, while showing the kind of solidarity against OCP, and you know, because usually the default assumption is in these future sci-fi visions is that the community will break down uh, if you remember we were talking about the last days of american crime you know um and how the default kind of position is that community shatters and people just start killing each other but they, they're actually coming together here, so it is quite positive um but it's just not that interesting and in the end if you remember this is the one where robocop gets a uh, You're gonna say jetpack, jet pack, aren't you? Yeah, 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 there it is. And the special effects. Whew. Are they worse than the um like surf lava scene in Escape from LA? <laughs> well, nothing comes close to that oh, right. in terms of brilliance. But um <laughs> But yeah, but more than that, like he's got this jetpack and it's that moment that he's kind of he's become a superhero now, and it's like he's basically a rubbish Iron Man, really. And I feel like 
we're so far from the original point of Robocop that it's just, he could be anyone. He could be any kind of superhero at that point. Uh, and it just looks bad. Uh, I, it's only the lightness of touch that keeps the film actually watchable. Because if it had been really dark, as well as having this slightly tedious plot, then it would have been a terrible, terrible movie. But as it is, it's just quite a bad movie. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, probably best to not bother going back to that one. Well, the thing is, I remember watch I watched RoboCop um uh, a f- like a few years ago and then I remember soon after it I watched RoboCop 2 uh, because mm. I like Tom Noonan and I remember thinking this is just a really unpleasant, you know, kind of retread. Yeah. And then I just thought well the third one is uh, is there anything there anymore for me? <laughs> so I, I don't think I'm pretty sure I've never seen it. Um, or if I have, it was when I was very young and it was, a, it's what 93 it was made. Yes. So yeah, it would have been, would I would have been 10 when it came out. So I may have watched like a heavily cut version on TV or something, but mm. I have no real reason to read. I mean, if I want to watch a Robocop film, I'll just watch the first one or the TV so series. Nice. Yeah. Did Robert John Burke go on to keep playing Robocop in the TV series? Ooh, I wonder. Maybe. Because that was proper PG territory. It's a, it's an odd one, isn't it? The way that the way that the film they decided that this franchise had become something for children. Because I know that the idea was that apparently Robocot's fans were, were young people. That's why they made Robocot 3, thinking that it would appeal to young people. But I would I remember watching Robocop when I was young, way too young to really be watching it. And I remember thinking it was really cool, but part of its coolness was just how kind of over the top and violent it was and how dark it was, but also with its kind of wacky humor as well. Yeah. It's got a cool robot in it. Yeah. yeah, I I remember Uh, thinking he's cool. And hmm, I I just think surely the, the thing that made him popular amongst edgy young people, um, if they then tone that down, then those same people, they're just going to think, well, this is like the the last thing that t- like teenage boys into that sort of stuff want is a toned down version of the forbidden thing that they watched in the first place, right? Yeah. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty tedious now. Well, I'm not going to watch that. No. Don't bother <laughs> What are you going to watch all of the TV series and the cartoon now? I remember renting what I thought was the Robocop <laughs> film from the video store. And then I put it on. I realized that it was the um, TV series. Like mm. I put it on. I thought, hang on, this looks really cheap. Uh, <laughs> the TV series of Robocop. I don't even think it was like the first part because it would have been on VHS. And I think it That's- was like. It was like maybe episodes four, five, and six or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, because, so. of course, John, three. the thing is, when I was a kid, if I was, like, being really naughty, like, if I came home from work, I'm uh, sorry, from school, like, late, and he's like, where have you been? I was like, oh, nowhere. He would come up to me, and he would, like, jab me in the chest and say, if you carry on, I am going to rent the TV series of Robocop. <laughs> and it would be enough to frighten me into not, not doing it. And then, and then... um after that, then as I got older, then if I like, you know, came home drunk, he'd say, "What are you doing, drunk under my roof? If this carries on, we are going to watch Highlander Four with Adrian Paul." <laughs> oh, it used to terrify me. 
Um, there's two first names, by the way. My yes. so my my penultimate film here is Behind the Mask: The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Oh yeah, which is a film I thought you would have watched because I know you, you do like your kind of trashy horrors, and I'm surprised this has slipped through the cracks. And I'm happy to to bring it to your attention Good. and to the attention of our listeners. This is a 2006 sort of um, black comedy mockumentary about horror icons, which sounds crap. <laughs> yes. So it's 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 about this guy, a, a, a documentary crew of like a, a, a complete screamer who looks a little bit like Scarlett Johansson, and two uh, two sort of cameramen who find this guy called Leslie Vernon who is lives in a world as the, the film is set where all of the sort of slashes from the 70s and 80s like um Jason Voorhees Michael Myers are, are are just real they were just real people who this person reveres and wants to become a serial killer like them right. and this the way the film starts is this documentary team are kind of following him around kind of almost um humoring him you know, as he says, oh, you know, mm. I've got to do my, I've got to do my cardio. I've got to chase those kids through the woods, and I've got my backstory set up. And then, and it, he is a really interesting screen presence. And what I found weird about this film is how much I enjoyed it. Um, you get people as well like Scott Wilson, Robert Englund, and Kane Hodder rocking up every now and again, which is fine. Mm. How much I enjoyed it, and how much like no one really in the film went on to do anything else because they they are fine. Like the film is much more than the kind of sum of its parts. Mm. Um, it's interesting how it the sort of black comedy running through it is actually quite funny in some parts. And when they when they start sort of not teasing him but not taking him as seriously as he wants to be taken, he's like this kind of amiable guy. And you can see that like he's like, no, this is this is very serious. I am going to kill a load of people, and you're going to film it. Um, and towards the end of the film, although it kind of gets a little bit generic, in what happens is it switches from being a sort of fictional documentary into just it just moves away from that and turns into an actual horror film but okay. it's kind of it, it's kind of earned it by that point right um but yeah it's uh, again it's it's a short film and it's quite sort of quietly funny and um it, it's it's worth acoustics it's quite a unique film yeah this sounds really interesting and i've definitely added it to my list what what's it available on i i, I oh god it's it's got, it it sounds ago. like a Prime thing. I'm pretty sure I watched it on. It's again. I'll say it, I've got to pay more attention to this. I think it's Amazon Prime, but it's Prime or Netflix. Yes, and it's on there for free. But yeah, it's um, Behind the Mask: The Rise of Leslie Vernon. I, I'm surprised that well, the fact that you haven't seen it and you're no? a fan of this, you know, it, it shows. It's got a great poster as well for the cover. I, the, yeah, this people should watch this. And I, it's a bit of a shame that the people involved in it, like Nathan Basil and Angela Gothels, didn't go on to do more stuff because mm. they're perfectly fine in it. Yeah, that's a pity. That sounds really intriguing. I'll definitely be watching that. Yeah. Um, okay, so what, what are we up to time-wise? We're up to... It's about an hour and a half, isn't it, I think? Yeah, maybe. Right, okay. All right, I've got, I've got three left. I'll, I'll quickly go through Blind Fury, uh, which is available on Amazon Prime. This is uh, a 1989 film directed by journeyman director Philip Noyce, known for the Jack Ryan films, Salt and the Saint. Um, yeah, um, it's uh, starring Rutger Hauer. Um, it seems to have quite a positive reputation, but I found it quite insufferable, I've got to say. And it's loosely based on one of the many, many Zatoichi films. It's about a Vietnam vet who is blinded 
and then trained by villagers to become a master swordsman. 20 years later, looking identical, he is in Miami um, and his mission is to help his war buddy's son get back to his father. Uh, There are gangsters out to get the kid as well because they want leverage over the father because of some reasons. Anyway, the tone is very light. It's a very light-hearted, yeah, with a lot of kind of goofy humour. And Rutger Hauer, he's quite convincing in the quiet scenes and actually does the blind thing pretty well. But I just don't think he... I don't think the jokes suit Rutger Hauer's quite intense style. Like, he's not naturally a very funny person. And I think when he starts to do the goofy humour stuff, he just comes across as a little bit menacing more than anything. The script is just really unfunny. That doesn't help. Um, huh. And the the banter between Rutger and the kid is very, very tiresome. Um, I just remember, the only thing I remember from that film is, a, hey, Mr. Jones, goodbye, Mr. Jones. And he's just tossing him in front of his face. Mm. That's the, the only... There is a, there is a henchman called Slag, which I've, which was probably the funniest thing in the film. Really? Yeah. Is it is it? Does anyone say you know what a slag is? Don't you? <laughs> no, and no one calls it. No one like shouts in a Cockney accent. You slag. But um, unfortunately, if Guy Richard directed it, that would have been remedy. Exactly. Well, maybe there'll be a remake. Um, the action is pretty workmanlike. Really, he never really shows that he's in any way an expert with a sword. Got to say, I mean, he will show off a bit by slashing something, and it it will then slide apart. But when he actually gets into fights, he's pretty lame. Um, yeah, and not overall, unlike the Ultimate Warrior in <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. What was that film we watched? Was that Firepower? Yes, yes, it was Firepower. Yes, Firepower with Gary Daniels. Yes, yeah, so he's basically yes, yeah, so he's like the Ultimate Warrior in that. Just a bit. He just seems a bit clunky because he's the thing is about Rutger is he's 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 a big guy but he's not he's not lithe or anything you don't really think of him as a swordsman you think of him a bit of a bruiser really it'd just be pure power so again yes he is um he's just not funny in this and it's a bit embarrassing it overall it's a very mediocre film and it's not really worth a watch and you have to wait until the very end credits before a single synthesized saxophone comes in. So <laughs> it's not worth the wait, frankly. It loses points for that. This is a shame because this is a film, again, um, much like another one you mentioned earlier on that has already evaded my memory, that I've <laughs> hovered over watching and thought, no, 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 it's not the time. But it's like, I'm quite, maybe it's just one of those films I thought I enjoyed more than I did. It's one of the films I watched a couple of times with my grandfather. So... Mm. I can imagine. I think I won't revisit that because if it sounds it sounds really flat, and I have kind of nice memories of it, so I'll, I'll just leave them where they are. I think so. Yeah, you don't want to spoil the memories. If you associate it with something positive, you don't want to watch it again and think that's crap. That is. I know. I don't want to have to like go traveling to his grave and then like sort of tap on the tombstone and say, "Blind Fury hasn't held up." By the way, Bams. <laughs> it's always yeah. I know that's what you're thinking up in heaven. Um, <laughs> Is your, although he did introduce me to Jim Carter, which it does hold up. <laughs> that will never, that will never fall. No, like, a, seen... like a really quality gymnast, it will never fall. Or well, unlike um, Kurt Wilson, who did die a couple of months oh, right. ago. Okay. Yeah, right. okay. uh, I've saved this film for last because I was 
there's a lot of aspects of it that need to be discussed in granular detail. Okay. Um, this is Remains from 2011, also known as Steve Niles Remains, and it's a horror film, zombie horror film, based on a graphic novel or a mm-hmm. series of comic books. And it is crap. <laughs> it is crap. I was, I watched it and uh, with Faye, and, and there were there were certain points when I would pause the film and we would just say out loud to each other what was happening on the screen, just to really drive home what we were seeing. Um, it's about uh, four people, four irritating, bickering people, who work in a casino, and mm-hmm. they kind of they all survive this kind of effectively this world-ending scenario, and Love everyone in. Comment. Yeah, and everyone in in Reno uh, is a zombie, and they're just trying to survive. But considering this is based on a, I mean, this is this is 2011. It's po- well, post Walking Dead, so I don't know if this was just released when the Walking Dead was, you know, it was just jumping on that bandwagon. But it brings nothing new, nothing new to the genre, and it, it can be summed up. Um, although I'm going to go into more detail, it can be summed up in that it's just four people bickering in a casino and occasionally looking at zombies out of a window. But Jesus. what there, there's so many things about it that are just irritating. All of them are irritating. And every time they talk, they, they don't really speak. They, they bicker. Um, and every now and again, there's this. So there's like um, a, a guy who plays a croupier who you'll know him if you see him. It's uh, what's his name? He's going to be here somewhere. Grant Grant Bowler. <laughs> sounds, like a, me... sounds like a disease. <laughs> I just realised when I looked at him, you're not going to know who he is. I just recognise him from something else. So he's kind I might of check um, him out. Yeah, so Grant Bowler, he he is like a croupier, uh, a kind of waitress that he's sort of knocking off on the side, uh, a, a magician, like a sort of small, um, nervous magician, and a kind of guy who they sort of rescue off the street who's just really self-centered, just a sort of buff, good-looking dude. And the first, like, 40 minutes of the film are them literally hanging around board, just just breaking into arguments, like they'll have a, have a beer, and then they'll have awful dialogue like she'll say to him oh you're drinking again you and he'll say there's nothing else to do uh apart from you you're not gonna do me huh, wanna bet you wish yeah, you know yeah. what just shut up Stop just it. shut up um and when the the, the scenes they have with it they try to sort of escape i'm gonna I'm gonna break them down because they're astonishing and i don't even think that when they were being filmed they knew what they were doing so there's this there's a scene where they 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 leave and there's two of them leave and two of them stay in the um in the casino and go up to like the fifth floor so the plan is they can see some like a military base in the distance and the plan is to turn on this kind of industrial light that will play all this music and shoot obviously like an industrial beam up to the sky so the military will see them and know there are people waiting to be saved they go to it and they sort of walk through the zombies and the problem with the zombies as well is it's never like the sort of um, the film's internal logic is never explicitly stated. So you're not sure if the zombies are driven to music, why they all seem to sleep in the evenings, um, why some of the zombies will just ignore humans and others will just go after them in a really sort of feral way. Nothing's really explained. Mm-hmm. So you've got no rules. So every time they're walking out into a group of zombies, you don't feel any threat because you think, well, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Because no it's, it's, it's arbitrary whether they'll live or die. Get attacked or not, yeah. yeah. 
So they sneak through these like zombies, and they literally just walk past them in the street, and then they turn on this lamp, uh, this huge torch, and obviously this like circus music starts playing, and the zombies run towards it, and they look in the distance, and they have got the attention of this military base, and then instantly they just turn it off, and they then they run on the back of this sort of flatbed truck, and the zombies go for them, and they and they get caught uh, sort of up in this huge fight, and I thought, but that was your plan. Your plan was to turn that light on, the zombies run to it, and you can run back. And then when the zombies ran to it, you turned it off, so they just went for you instead. And, <laughs> and, and things and the way the way, and this is not a comedy, the way in which the guy the magician who's back at the hotel, at the sort of um casino, the way he tries to get the zombies' attention, hundreds of zombies swarming around a van in the middle of, of a road, he throws some chicken fillets out of a window at them. And then when the zombies completely ignore these chicken fillets he's got at the fridge, he shouts, they're not, they're not falling for it. And I thought, well, no, because they're zombies, aren't they? Yeah. They're not going to give a shit about chicken fillets. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, it's got no internal plot logic. There's a sequence where um, the, 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 the military turn up and they're obviously a, a bit saucy, a little bit cheeky, not on the up and up. And one of the guys, the sort of magician's um, assistant, has got a gun in his back pocket. And one of the military says, oh, he's got a gun. And he gets surrounded by this, this mili- led by Lance Reddick, and I do love his voice. Gets surrounded by them. There's about 15 highly trained military personnel on him. And he he just pulls the gun out and just gets shot dead. And then the woman walks over and like picks the gun up and gets shot at. And then they sort of splinter off again when they could have just shut mm-hmm. their mouths and just left with them. It's like, what? It's like they create their own drama because there's none in the film because they're too busy being bored in a casino. It's awful. That's uh, called Remains. Yeah. And it ends in a way as well that like implies that it's going to like lead on to like another film. No, yeah. no. no. N- nothing remains to be said about that one. Oh, it's crap. Crap. <laughs> Apart from his crap. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, I won't be watching that then. No. And that's me done, by the way. That's the last film. Okay, well, I've only got a couple more. Just uh, I'll quickly go through Trilogy of Terror. This is a 1975 TV movie, obviously. Oh, okay. It's only about 70 minutes long. Um, it stars Car- all three stories. Three, is it? Yeah, three stories star Karen Black. Um I, who I know from Burnt Offerings with Oliver Reed, good, and The Invaders from Mars remake, directed by Toe Pooper. Um And it, she is, it's an anthology thing, so it's three chilling tales. But they're not really tales of terror, more like moderate discomfort at best, to be honest. Um, in the first one, she's a teacher who goes on a date with a student. He drugs her, attacks her, takes pictures and tries to blackmail her. And she seeks revenge. It's quite, it's actually quite creepily believable, but the ending is very silly. Uh, the second one is a tale of rivalry between two twins. I found a bit talky and old fashioned. Black uh, Karen Black plays both twins, obviously, um, but she she's good in like kind of very opposing roles. The third one and best one is about, and Karen Black plays a woman who's terrorized by this voodoo doll in her apartment um it's very silly and cheaply made but it's quite hang on um, i i've seen this is what we're like it yes 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 it's a, it's a little, she's got buzzing teeth 
Yes, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I've seen this. Yes, I have seen this recently, weirdly. Yeah. Um, it, it's quite different from more recent anthologies because they're quite quite sober and quite sober, quiet stories mostly. Uh, mostly lacking kind of big gory moments um quite grounded in their approach really i think karen black's very versatile and but there, there aren't many locations and it's quite cheaply made it's, it's it is a tv movie to be fair they're more like like mini plays really but honestly if it wasn't for the third part segment then it probably wouldn't be worth recommending but it's probably worth it just for that because it's quite a tense little nasty segment yeah Really cheaply made, though. I mean, it's just a, <laughs> it's just a puppet, literally oh. someone's hand in a puppet. Yes, yes, slashing at her legs and stuff. <laughs> tiny uh, sword, yeah, or spear, I think it is. Um, so I'll move swiftly on to the final one, which is No Escape, and this is on Netflix and Prime. Believe it or not, oh, this is made in 2015. Um, it's a, an intense. Uh, and violent action film about regular people in an extreme situation. So Owen Wilson and his family arrive in Cambodia because he's got a new job with a water company and they're staying in this hotel and an armed militia kick off, basically. And they quickly realise that the reason they're kicking off this armed militia is because they're opposing US intervention uh, in their country and they're killing anyone any foreigners, especially Americans, and especially Owen Wilson. Um, and it's like a cat and mouse <laughs> movie then. Um, like the family is avoiding gunfire, hiding in burnout buildings, getting shot at. Pierce Brosnan rocks up. He's playing an ex-SAS guy. Um, it is borderline xenophobic, um, but it isn't... It, it kind of steers clear of being very specific about who these people are um, or even, maybe even what country they're in, to be honest. Um, uh, maybe, maybe they don't even mention this Cambodia, but perhaps it was just filmed there. But anyway, so as, but forgetting the politics as an exercise, intense action, it's incredibly well made. And I was very surprised to see it was made for $5 million because I've seen worse looking films than this made for 10 times as much like spectre for example like it, it it looks really good it's really well directed and the editing's good very exciting not a whole lot of character development but it is i'd say the the overriding feeling i got watching it first time around and re-watching it is it's really scary and and because they, these are just regular people desperately trying to survive while very, very fierce armed people are trying to kill them. It makes it quite terrifying. It's a pure sensory experience. It definitely puts you in the shoes of people who are basically inches from death at every turn. Um, and also the casting is really good because Owen Wilson um, is obviously very good and and Lake Bell, other parents. And Lake Bell's excellent as well. And the it's like there's no kind of macho element to it. It's just survival. And they do sell the fear. Uh, Pierce Brosnan is a little bit silly with his faux Cockney accent. But it is cool to see him just kicking some ass, really. Like, obviously, this is well post-Bond, um, good 15 years after Bond, his Bond stint finished. Mm. Um, and it has a good ending, which makes you realise that the kind of 
the whole purpose of the film all along was to sort of put you into the shoes of genuine asylum seekers, really, because it 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 almost it puts a U.S. family in that role of the people desperate to get out of a country that hates them and wants to kill them. Uh, so it's quite smart in that regard. Um, there's a few Deus Ex Machina moments, um, uh, like where they'll suddenly get rescued in the face of certain death. But I will say that that those moments almost exclusively come about because of their their position, really. The the fact that they're white, wealthy, and privileged. It they usually come about because of that very fact. And ironically, it's precisely that status that caused them to be in the targets in the first place. So, oh. yeah, I think it's quite a smart movie. But regardless of its deeper meaning, it's just as a sensory experience, it's extremely intense and well made and well worth a watch. I oh, think that sounds pretty cool. Mm. I've got a feeling that I've watched this, um, but possibly a glass of wine or two in and I can't. <laughs> fully it's like i'm getting flashes of it and i've got a feeling i watched it around the same time as i watched what's that film with ewan mcgregor um the impossible yes about the the tsunami yes yeah i watched them i think they're mixing together in my mind because i did go through a phase about five or six years ago of watching a lot of owen wilson films okay yeah um obviously drill bit taylor being at the top of the heap actually um, (laughs) <laughs> so yeah well to be honest there's been some decent films uh this week and yeah i would say that my i would like to do a hollow point is a is a good is a good border thriller um behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon is a good is a, a good horror and a little bit different this approach inception is obviously a, a fundamentally really well-made film but for me uh, venom i because yeah I, because I thought that it would be crap and because I'd heard from people it's like the I heard from like um people that the entire middle of the film was boring and and that to me is like the worst crime a film can commit is to bore me. Mm. Um but no I I really enjoyed it. Um and I'm looking forward to the next one. So for me film of the week is Venom. I will be watching that as well as um yes, the other one which is whose name I've already forgotten the The Hollow Point. No. Oh, the rise of Leslie Vernon. Leslie Vernon, that's it. <laughs> yes, definitely be watching them. Um, so for me, I my 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 selections haven't been so good this week, but I think if I was gonna, uh, Awakenings is very solid, and it's an interesting little moment in history, uh, and very well acted. I think it's if you're gonna watch a Robin Williams film, then and you want to try something a little bit different, or perhaps something which you hadn't thought of before outside like his bigger hits then awakenings is a good movie but i would also like to draw attention to no escape because it's it seems like a a really it's a really exciting tense movie which is very well made and it doesn't seem to have pleased anyone at the time i think (laughs) critics found it possibly xenophobic or tasteless and maybe, I, I don't know, maybe because it because it's not about a hero kicking ass, maybe it was a bit lost on audiences as well. I don't know. But I thought it was pretty smart, pretty exciting little film. So I'd say No Escape. Yeah, I think that's yeah. one on my list to watch as well, definitely. Yeah, really cool. Okay, so that's that. 
We actually finished it under two hours, which is, wow. which is good. Yeah, that's a rarity for us. You're obviously just not watching enough films. Yeah, next next time we'll bring it under 30 minutes, yeah? <laughs> I love it. Right then, I'll, uh, I'm going to go off and maybe watch No Escape, and then I'll watch No Way Out. <laughs> and then No Retreat, No Surrender. And then I'll watch Escape Plan 2. That film was so crap, by the way. This is so <laughs> any of us have I don't think it even made it through the first one, to be honest. <laughs> the first one was like the novelty of like Sly and Arnie being in there together, mm. but the second one was awful. It was just like a load of random scenes thrown into a blender. Jeez, I'm. Uh, we started watching the, the Departed, so I'll have my thoughts on that next time. Departed. That's Departed. based on the, the in, in Infernal Affairs. Is That's that right? correct. Yes. Yes. Should watch them both back to back, really, like a real man. That'd be a long. She's <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot of work to watch there. <laughs> Two movies followed by a three-hour movie. Yeah, love it. Cool. Okay. Right then, I shall love you, leave you, and I'll speak to you soon. Take care. All my love. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.